0: This is Andy Wakefield, and this is the Andy Wakefield Podcast. This is a place where stories are told that have never been heard before.
1: Hi, Andy. Welcome back. Here we are.
0: Hi, Laurie. Great to be with you again.
1: So, we have a special guest with us today. We have Jim Moody, who's a Washington, D.C. attorney, with us. Andy, would you like to welcome Jim?
0: Yeah, Jim has been a great friend of mine for a very long time and is an expert in just about everything legal from all public, public interest law, whistleblower law. I've never met someone with such an extraordinary command of every aspect of the, of the legal system. Jim is with us today to discuss some of the issues relevant to the compensation program that pertains to...
1: To what everybody's talking about.
0: Everybody's talking about. And which is-, is
1: COVID, corona. I guess Jim likes to call it Wuhan. He wants to stick to the traditional name, is my understanding.
2: Yeah. I yes. Hi, Andy. And hi, Lori. And thank you. I'm happy to be here and happy to help. Thank and uh, I think uh, we we name diseases and and whatnot from their origin. And I think it's uh, that as a taxonomy. And I think it's appropriate, particularly in this case, to stick to the Wuhan flu or the Wuhan virus for uh, for this particular problem. We did a
1: podcast a few weeks ago, Andy and I did, when it was very first beginning to hit headlines. I don't think either one of us, when we had that podcast andy had any idea that we were going to head into what we were heading into did we i certainly didn't think i don't think any of us did
0: not at all and i i because i was so tied up with the film i've really been playing catch up on on the wuhan story ever since so um i'm here to learn as much as uh as to to discuss it myself
1: well, and, and Jim and I were talking about this this countermeasure program. I had never even heard of the countermeasure program. I was very surprised to hear that, you know, when when Fauci was at President Trump's press conference yesterday and said that we had started the phase one trials for the coronavirus vaccine and that this is a whole different ball of wax, I was just completely surprised. I had no idea about this. So I know that both of you had been talking about it. Jim. I know you've known about this for a while, but- I'd like to learn more about it. I mean, Andy, had you heard about this countermeasure program? Were you aware?
0: I'd heard about it, but I, I wasn't really terribly conversant with it. As Jim has pointed out, if, if, the, if NVICA, the National Child for and Injury Compensation Act, is, is a bad one, then this is <laughs> many times worse. I was just looking at this countermeasures program, and it talked about um, the requirements that you had to meet in order to get compensated now bear in mind when we you know we when we discuss this that there is a plan to circumvent all of the uh, early testing, all of the early safety and efficacy testing for this vaccine and really move straight to human trials and scale it up um, ready for rapid deployment. So there will be a, 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 an absence of any science, an absence of any safety science that, uh, for example, the first trial that's going ahead doesn't have any unvaccinated control group, which is something which we've lamented forever, and that is the lack of unvaccinated controls against which to compare the rates of disease in those who are vaccinated. But it says here in the in, when it describes the countermeasures program, the causal connection, this is to get compensation if you are injured or uh, you are killed by this vaccine or by any vaccine that's produced, among other things, including treatment, the causal connection between the countermeasure and the serious physical injury must be supported by compelling, reliable, valid medical and scientific evidence in order for the individual to be considered the compensation. Now, that is a standard which no one is ever, ever going to be able to meet.
1: Right, especially if it doesn't exist, right? If it doesn't exist, how are you going to use it, that
0: data? Window dressing. It's purely put there as, oh yes, we have a program in place to compensate those who are injured. Uh, No, we don't. No, we do not.
1: So what we're talking about is an even more rigorous, even more challenging, even more, it almost feels like blatant government discretionary manipulation, for lack of a better term, in comparison to the 1986 Act. This is an even more difficult procedure that you're going to need to go through, a process that you're going to need to go through if you think you are injured by a vaccine that comes out of this countermeasure program. And so let's back up for just one second. Jim, the countermeasure program is specifically for pandemics. It's specifically to compensate people who might be injured by some kind of pandemic attack or biological attack against the United States. Give us more info
2: on that. Well, where it comes from, it comes from when the uh, childhood vaccine program was passed in eighty six. That covered childhood vaccines. Until recently, the flu vaccine was added in 2015 as a covered vaccine. So there was this gap that all of the vaccines that you and other countermeasures that you might want to invent in order to stop a, uh, or, a, or a thwart either a natural pandemic like Ebola or a, a, a mostly a bioterror weapon, uh, that's why they needed a new law to give liability for, to protection to industries and providers that made these things. Mm -hmm. And it it covers, it's much, really much bigger than biologics. Any kind of a terrorist attack would cover nuclear weapons, chemical weapons, biological weapons, any kind of a WMD. And so the term countermeasure is a very, very broad term. And it covers vaccines, devices, any other biologics like botulinum toxin, uh, protective gear, diagnostics like tests, treatments like ventilators and respirators. The syringes that are used to administer these things and the covered persons includes the industry that manufactures them, obviously, but also the doctors and hospitals that provide the the vaccine or the treatment, and it covers diseases that you might get from the intervention. So if you get acute lung syndrome from using a ventilator uh, and a hospital somehow is negligent there. And he tried to sue the hospital under normal state negligence theory. They'd be able to interpose this designation um, under the uh, Countermeasure Injury Compensation Program (CICP) as a defense. Okay, so
1: all these like r- ventilators, we keep hearing the question be asked, being asked, how many ventilators? are concerned that if enough Americans contract Wuhan then if there's not enough ventilators, that could be an issue, right? I know that's been an issue in Italy. Um,
2: that would be a compensation. Who pays for this, Jim? This has a budget um, and it's, it would come out of the, what's called the judgment fund. Uh, huh. But unlike the uh, children's program where they've had a statistics table, and that's how we know there's a roughly $4.2 billion have been paid out in roughly 3,200 claims over the years. The statistics for the uh, CICP program are confidential. And it's been used seven times for uh, Zika, Ebola, uh, H1N1 was the first, acute radiation poisoning, and some nerve nerve agents. Now, this is the seventh designation, and it's just filed. It was signed yesterday and filed in the Federal Register today, today being March 17th. So it's retroactive to February 4th and the designation will last until October 1st of 2024.
1: So it's a countermeasure program. Is it, is it only activated when needed and then funded, or is it an ongoing program no, it's, like the 1980s? It's, it's, it's,
2: its coverage is activated by the secretary, in this case Alex Azar, signing a declaration. I see. That's what, that's what turns out. It doesn't require congressional action. Uh, it doesn't require presidential action. It's not an executive order or executive directive. It's not something that Fauci issues from NIAID or the CDC issues. This is a designation signed by the secretary of HHS to turn on coverage for the, and he lists in there the specific countermeasures that are covered and the persons that are covered.
1: So this is the Andy Wakefield podcast. Andy, I don't mean to be asking all these questions and just dominating here. I'm just so curious to learn more about this and especially, you know, with relation to health freedom and a rush to market vaccine. I know there's great concern here. And as you've been working on the film, you know we can see even back to the 70s when there was a rush to market with the swine flu vaccine, people were injured. I know you have the numbers on that, how many people were injured and how many people died. All right, what are your concerns here?
0: Back, back then there was, I mean, we didn't have the molecular technology to determine the strain origin or the precise nature of the beast that we were dealing with. And so there was a a there was a, the, an airing on the side of caution that the swine flu that emerged in, in the 70s was akin to the killer swine flu from way back 1917, 18, that allegedly killed many millions worldwide. But it, it was wrong, it was wrong. The CDC got it wrong. And um, there was an attempt to cover up by David Sensor and others at the time to deny that they were told that there was uh, the risk of injury, paralysis, neurological injury following a swine flu vaccine program. And as a consequence, there were 532 cases of paralysis, 58 deaths. And it cost the taxpayer over 220 million because the government had, as Jim said, given the industry liability protection. It's interesting how it came about. It came about with initially, uh, the government said, Congress said, no, we're not going to offer liability protection. The, ind- the insurance industry had declined to give protection because it is a vaccine that had been rushed to market, and quite mm-hmm. rightly, they, the insurance companies said, no, you've not proven the safety of this, and we're not going to underwrite it. So they went to the government and said, you need to, you need to uh, underwrite this, and the government. Initially said no, and then there was this purely coincidental outbreak of Legionnaires' disease in Philadelphia. In the Legion, Legionnaires returning home from their annual convention, started dropping dead, and it took the CDC a long time—six months—to actually identify the, the agent responsible. It was deemed quite early on that it wasn't swine flu, but the public panicked, and fear was a huge, as you know, and as is being exemplified at the moment, fear is. A huge motivator. Oh boy. Uh, and it took We're seeing ten-
1: that like never before yeah. right now, aren't we?
0: That's right. And it took 10 days for Ford to sign the Swine Flu Compensation Act into law. Uh, 10 days just after the outbreak of that. So it was, even though the Legionnaire's disease was nothing to do with swine flu, it nonetheless triggered panic, sufficient anxiety in the politicians and others that it led to the act being signed into law. And of course, it was the taxpayer who then picked up the bill for what was a false alarm. And so it's not got a good history. And none of this has got a good history. And it's really interesting that many of those who are the staunchest advocates of vaccine programs, including people like Paul Offit and others, are urging caution. And I think they realize that vaccines are on, on display right now. It is very, very high in the public consciousness that there are concerns about vaccine safety across the board. Mm-hmm. There are deficiencies in vaccine safety testing, but the work has not been done. Many assumptions have been made. Diseases are coming back, blamed on anti-vaxxers. It's now realized that it's actually a presumption on our part of an understanding of these agents when we didn't understand them at all, and now they're back. And And so vaccines are under the microscope. And so if they get it wrong with this, it's going to be a very, very public mistake. And the history, as I say, of this kind of mass vaccination campaign in the face of new epidemics is has got a very very bad track record and so if they get it wrong with this it's going to be a very public issue and it comes about not least of which is because using these sort of engineered frankenstein type viral vaccines for dengue fever in the far east led to catastrophic results uh, that were not expected uh, leading to those children who are vaccinated um, being at high risk of severe disease for the rest of their life as a consequence of having been exposed to the vaccine. So Mm -hmm. there is now a real sense of caution even amongst the strongest advocates of vaccination.
1: So your thought is that we're headed to a norm where if you're gonna be in a public space, you're gonna have to have this vaccine because it is, airborne, it survives for so long and it's so virulent. What I'm wondering is as Fauci just announced, you know, phase one and the first human has now been injected with this experimental vaccine. What are the risks of playing this thing out? You know, again, right now we don't see the numbers. People way smarter than me and way more qualified than I am seem to think that there's great concern because of the virulence associated with this virus. But what, you know, what are the risks? of getting it wrong and rushing versus the risks of seeing where we go and do you think that it's a matter of finding a balance there and what are we looking at legally in terms of the ability to even file a claim under the countermeasure act when there really is not going to be any of the data that Andy mentioned you need to actually prove a, a, a case to get a, a, a compensation
2: as things stand now and the the uh, uh, first the first patient Jennifer Haller was injected with the first vaccine in a phase one trial yesterday of 50 patients out in Seattle. So the phase one human trials have begun. And so, but as things stand now as as a designated countermeasure and given the secrecy on the data and the very high impossible burden of proof, no matter who's injured and how severe the injuries and deaths are, and there certainly will be some because no vaccine can ever be made perfectly safe, no matter what your intentions are, it's simply an impossible task there will be lots of death and injury and no, no opportunity for compensation. And actually that will serve as a disincentive to go out and get it, you know, because you're on your own.
1: So are we not setting ourselves up here for a huge conflict uh, socially given that, as Andy, you just said, vaccines are under the microscope, I love that, more than they ever have been. People are starting to recognize that the risks are much greater than what we've been told Do you think that this is going to force sort of the coming to a head of this whole conversation about health freedom and what that really means?
0: I think it will. And I think that, you know, one of the big problems that I referred to earlier is that, where did it come from? Unless we have that discussion, which is not being held at the moment, other than in the sort of informed online blogs and and, and, uh, tweets, Where did it come from? If it was an engineered bioweapon or a vaccine-derived escape agent, um, the the public are going to be vulnerable to this kind of attack, however it came about, for whatever reason, from this point forward, and Mm -hmm. therefore are going to be faced with the prospect of increasingly draconian public health measures which are sinister in their origins. so there's certainly the the, the, the the escape of this agent uh, whether it was from we talked earlier about the sars virus and and my uh, exposure to um a member of the british secret service who was a sort of uber hacker if you like he could hack his way into anywhere at any time on any machine and he discovered that there was an earthquake in central China that destroyed the bioweapons or damaged the bioweapons facility there way back with SARS, and that was the origin or the presumed origin of the of this agent. So this how, was how then, long
1: did it take him, Andy, to figure that out? How long was he, did, it- he
0: never disclosed that to me? But it didn't take him very long, and he okay. uh, and he was then contacted by his minder to say, "You don't breathe a word of this, and and behave yourself in future." And so. um it's highly likely that these escape agents are engineered in the laboratory and have seem to have a, a common origin in central China. But the public have got to be protected against this going forward. And unless we have that discussion and we have that molecular sleuthing and an understanding of where this came from, it can it's going to happen more and more regularly. And um, the public are, are very vulnerable. I mean, and not, not least of which is because, I mean, I'm reading the data now, uh, catching up on it, um, on the flu vaccine, having received a flu vaccine makes you significantly more susceptible to a coronavirus infection. And uh, un- that is, that is so infection.
1: interesting that you're saying that because I was talking to an MD friend of mine today and she, was just communicating with a colleague of hers who's an ER doc, and he has agreed to start doing a kind of amateur study, if you will, in the ER of patients that would come in, and this is in Massachusetts, of the patients that come in, if they test positive and are sick with the Wuhan coronavirus, how many of them recently had a flu shot? Because if they have, and if your system is weakened by a flu shot, are you more susceptible or any vaccine for that matter? Uh,
0: the, the data suggests that you are, and the data suggests that while flu shots may produce antibodies, they have a non specific suppressive effect on cellular immune responses, which are far more important for protection against and recovery from viral infection. And so, if you are having this. Adverse effect with a flu shot upon cellular immunity that makes you more susceptible not only to apparently unrelated infections such as coronavirus but other strains of flu that come successively year on year. Then you're making you're creating an increasingly vulnerable population, and um, this comes back to the kind of observation that Peter Arbib has made in West Africa of of the non-specific. They are described as non-specific. They will turn out at a biological level to be specific, but described for the moment as non-specific effects of vaccines that make you more susceptible to other infections and increase the overall mortality to the point where the DTP vaccine has killed more children from other infections than it has saved from the target diseases of diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. And so we may well be looking at analogous an analogous situation here with the flu vaccine and the Wuhan virus. And uh, when we look at the deaths in Washington, where the great majority of those deaths appear to be taking place in elderly in.
1: Oh, boy, boy, they really push the flu shot every year in, in the skilled nursing facilities. I mean, you can't even get in the elevator without a get your flu shot poster taped to the to the inside of the elevator. So it's quite likely that those elderly did recently receive a flu shot. We don't have proof a, of that, but- Here's a
0: perfect opportunity to do a study. A study should be set up prospectively to examine exactly this phenomenon. Will anyone do that study in a formal setting other than, for example, your your friend's colleague in an informal setting? No, they won't. Why? Because they don't want to know the answer. But that, this is a perfect opportunity to, ab initio, set up this study to determine whether there are susceptibility factors to this Wuhan virus, including exposure, recent exposure, exposure at all to flu vaccine.
1: Would this be a case, Jim, if if someone were to be injured or would die from the coronavirus vaccine, you might be filing a a case with the the US Special Claims Court under uh, the vaccine program and the countermeasures?
2: That's actually an interesting question. And the answer is yes the data supports an argument that the flu vaccine makes you more susceptible to injury, then the VICP case would be against the flu vaccine for exacerbating an underlying condition, i.e. making your immune system weaker. So yes, and that, it'd be a big fight about whether that needs to stay in the VICP program or has to get moved to the countermeasures program. But, but yes, here's an opportunity in a, in a clean slate for all kinds of very useful and very interesting studies, if only to support the moral obligation to compensate those who were injured. And, and I'm virtually certain, although the powers that be, the uh, a team headed by uh, Mike Pence could mandate and require that such studies be included in the rollout of the vaccine program, none of that will be done because we have a government policy of deliberate anti-science ignorance.
1: I noticed on the countermeasures website, there's actually a tab for grants. This would be an incredible grant. This would be a great opportunity for some kind of program to be put in place that would be based on truth. I I can only hope and pray that we're entering an era where there's enough citizen journalism happening and there's enough demand for accountability that this kind of information and data will come forth. But we'll have to wait and see, won't we? Anything else that either of you would like to add? I know this is highly unusual times. It's we're all three in different cities and different locations, and uh, we're seeing such incredible social effects. I don't think any of us in our lifetimes have ever seen anything like this before. What are your thoughts about just the socioeconomic implications about what we're seeing?
0: Well, I think apart. I'm mean, down here in South Florida, and apart from you know, millennials on spring break who, they seem incorrigible. And they, oh,
1: they think they're going to live forever. They're completely forever.
0: <laughs> people, are, people seem to be taking it very seriously, and not in a panicked way at all, but just in a sensible way. And the streets are very, very quiet. Starbucks, they've taken all of the seats and chairs out. <laughs> you can go in and get your coffee, but that's it. They've cancelled yoga. They've cancelled gyms so you can't work out. I mean, it's these are, these are small hardships, and uh, let's hope they pass very quickly. I suspect, as Jim has said earlier, that they, they, they won't. There will be a perceived success to this social distancing program, and so they'll continue it uh, into the summer months. Um, we'll see how that goes. But, uh, it,
1: it, it does seem to be a bit of a win on the part of uh, President Trump and Jim, and we were talking about this earlier. It was kind of a win-win, right? It certainly doesn't hurt for him to have made these recommendations and put together this task force to create this social distancing concept as a way to, you know, mitigate prevention. What do you, What well, do you think? Well, the, what, the, you're in Washington, D.C. Tell us what it, what's happening there.
2: Well, the the political climate drives him in the direction of taking whatever public health measures he can, uh, separate and apart from whether they're independently a good idea, but the politics of this drives him in the direction of taking whatever public health measures he can to reduce death. So if that means just ridiculous social distancing for the foreseeable future, that's what it means, because any, any deaths will be attributed by the political atmosphere to his not taking sufficiently strong action. Remember how just a few years ago, he was labeled as a Hitlerian and authoritarian. He was even labeled a racist and a xenophobe for banning Chinese, which now that we see what happened in in Europe, seems to be like the idea of the century.
1: Now he looks like a prophet for doing it. Well, it's going to be interesting to see as we uh, get through the spring here and into the summer what happens. But uh, very interesting. I hope, Andy, maybe somebody will hear this podcast and get the idea to do a prospective study connecting uh, or looking at whether or not there's a connection between the flu shot and and susceptibility uh, to the Wuhan. And Jim, I will honor your request now and forever call it Wuhan and not Corona. So
2: uh, it's just more accurate to call it that.
1: It makes sense. All right, well, thank you both so much. We'll have to uh, reconvene here in a couple of weeks and do an update and see where we are. Very Andy, exploring. the film—the film will be—we're uh, getting—we're getting close on the film. The film will be teed up perfectly.
0: I mean, it's extraordinary how this is playing out in real time. It resonates with what has gone before, the mistakes, the decisions that were made historically, everything that's led up to this moment. But not least of which is man's perception of his ecological and evolutionary relationship with microorganisms, with infection, and. It's time to accord these agents far more respect than we have done, particularly when we intend to manipulate, to engineer them, and to exploit them, because they will ultimately have the last laugh.
1: Well, Vaxxed had the De Niro effect. 1986, the Act. Perhaps now we'll have the Wuhan effect.
0: <laughs> the Wuhan effect. <laughs> yes.
1: but we, shall, we shall see. Watch this space.
0: Thank you, Laurie.
1: Thank you both so much. Thank you, Jim.
0: Thank you,
1: Jim. You've been listening to the Andy Wakefield Weekly Podcast, a place where stories are being told that have never been heard before. This is a Seventh Chakra Films production in collaboration with Brick City Creative. Please follow and like us while you still can on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 1986theact and soon on Sphere.